0: Folks, welcome to a special edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. And One of the major themes of my program has been covering, cover, covering the regional hotbeds of music that were happening at the time in this country, before we were all interconnected. I've explored the city scenes of Chicago and Detroit, New York and Boston, San Francisco, Los Angeles. But one of the most unheralded bastions of free music or just music in general, was Kansas City. Three of the major, major, major players, master musicians that came out of this area, came out at the same time, Carmel Jones, Donald Dean, and my guest. My guest has split his time playing Melodic Invention, along with educating students on terminology, individuality, accessibility, and love. Nathan Davis, it's an honor to welcome you to the Jake Feinberg program.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Nathan, you know, I, I would like to start by asking you, um, in your mind, you've, you just recently retired from teaching. Right. What it, how did you talk to younger students about uh, termino- terminology labels Stratification in my mind has really crippled music uh, and I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about growing up in Kansas City and how it, it, music was just music as Duke Ellington said it was just good and bad. Good or bad. So talk to me about how you talk to younger musicians, younger historians, ethnomusicologists about the idea of, of, of the time when there weren't any labels.
1: Well, I mean, you know, uh, as you know, I taught the history of jazz course all those years, and that was one of the most popular, I think, five, about five or six different times within the 43 years that I was teaching, it was voted by the students as the most popular undergraduate class on campus, you know. (laughs) So we would start back in the beginning when uh, basically... You know, we're looking at New Orleans. And first of all, I remember a conversation uh, that uh, I had uh, with New Orleans musicians when I was down there playing. And one of the things that came up was the word Dixieland. Hmm. And the word Dixieland, basically, was given to the music that was played in New Orleans, you know, uh, because of a mispronunciation
0: of the word ten, you know, peace land. Mm. If you
1: speak French, "un deux, trois, quatre, cinq, six, we, no, this. So it was c- because the ten-note French piece was the most popular money piece at that time. And so the music was Called, well, that's the music from Eastland, you know. So they call them, uh, and then basically, in America, just like we say, the Pennsylvania Deutsch mm-hmm. Dutch, we really mean Pennsylvania Deutsch because they were German. They speak, you know, uh, German in that part of Pennsylvania. So it's kind of a mispronunciation. Anyway, most of the time when people played Music. It was referred to by the geographical area. So, like in music from Kansas City, you know that music. They they either call it territory because of the territories: Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri. You know, like that.
0: Right. And so,
1: basically, that was that territory, or it was music from Eastland, or the, 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 they call the music up north. You know, that's the, the music from up in Northeastern, you know, part, and it was all really based on dancing. So then, all these terms like, uh, you know, when you start having smooth jazz, you have <laughs> cold jazz, you have hard bop, you have, you know, all these, at about the time, let's say, a progressive jazz, that music there, I mean, the, the names came about, say, for instance, because of the record companies, were giving the music a new name to stimulate sales. So in the time of bebop, we all know that bebop was a term that was in a lot of the older blues songs, like from Slam Gaylord and Slam Stewart. Mm-hmm. I've heard old, oh, you know, where is it, old oh, bop a old oh, bebop you know. So you got the name kind of stuck with that. then in the middle of the 40s when bebop, you know, was under attack and all this stuff, the record companies got together and said, well, let's call this progressive. <laughs> and from then on, you start getting all these, it's the same thing in rock. You know, where you got hard rock, you know, you got soft rock. Psych- you
0: psychedelic know, psych- rock. Psychedelic you know. rock. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, no, but here's, here's uh, what I want to, I want to talk to you about this. This is really fascinating. So, um, you, uh, uh, you know the uh, con- conga player, Big Black, a.k.a. Danny? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, honestly, I know I, I him. No. I, I did an interview with him, uh, and he was uh, very clear and outspoken about the idea that he... Uh, <clears throat> the word jazz right. uh, really originally came from the word jazz, J-A-S-S, meaning that... Well, that's correct. Uh, right, so I just... But I want to just finish this uh, and then let you... You can pontificate. Uh, he... he he talked about i mean he he kind of lived this where the idea was if you wanted to get some then you'd go down to this house of ill repute or a brothel and then you'd go upstairs but downstairs there was this swing music that was going on so people started calling it jazz but but Hi. but then when like you said when 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 the record industry became a marketplace real commerce they said well we can't we can't have something that sort of flamboyant, so we've got to drop the S's and we'll put Z's on it. And, and so is that is there truth in that? Because I'm still we're still looking for the genesis of the terminology, the, the term okay, jazz. Okay, the
1: term jazz, basically, there were a couple of theories, and I thought this also. One, that it meant something in one of the African languages, and mainly they talked about Yoruba, right? You can find this in Marshall Stearns' book. Story of jazz. Mm-hmm. And I also have been to Africa a few times. I uh, have a good number of friends of mine that are from Ghana and Nigeria and places like and, and in the Yoruba language, I remember checking very thoroughly that. And I talked to Willie uh Kumulai Amwako, who was from Ghana, and he was a graduate student at the University of Pittsburgh. I said, What you in your? original dialect where you speak from Ghana, is there a word such as jazz? He said, yes, it means good time, happiness, uh, you know, having a good time. Sure. Basically. Uh, the other theory was that it was a word that was developed in the, uh, in New Orleans, right? In in, the, in a certain district. And it meant that that uh, something relating to prostitution, mm-hmm. and so forth. So that would fit in about what Big Black was at, right? But the deal is, it was spelled J-A-S-S, and then it was spelled J-A-S, and then about 19, I think, uh, sixteen, seventeen in Chicago, there was another theory that the group out of New Orleans that played in Chicago... They were, you know, like the original Dixieland jazz band, basically. And then there was this brass player who played the brass instruments, who was so popular that instead of the Chicagoans, uh, they... They, they would say well, we want. His name was Jazz Bo, by the way, mm. not the guy from Philadelphia. Right. And they said we want to hear jazz. We want. To hear, well, we want to hear Jazz Bo. We want to hear Jazz Bo, and that got shortened to jazz, jazz, jazz. You know. But that's those are the three main theories. And so by the time we get up to 1917 with the original Dixieland jazz band in Chicago, the, the term becomes synonymous with the music
0: and not with the one musician. You know it's it's so it's such an honor to talk to Nathan Davis. Did did you have you collaborated professionally not musically but just uh, from an academic's point of view with Joe Chambers at all? No. Because Joe uh he, down in Wilmington, North Carolina, uh he he was talking about um the, the the ballrooms, the, the 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 big ballrooms that used to hold uh, you know the, these amazing um, uh, sessions of music with Duke Ellington and Woody Herman and 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 the big bands. But then right. there came this time where there was a he talked about this surtax, the tax that came along on these clubs, and it really hurt the vibrancy of live swing music, I, you know. And and, and uh, but the fact that well, that's
1: true, but that happened in New York. Basically, what happened happened, was that there was a, like, a tax on dance floors. Right? Right. Right. And so then, at that particular point, the music, as Joe was saying, was, you know, the big bands. It was dance music to dance to. In fact, you know, everybody ought to know that jazz originally was a dance music, you know. And so, what that meant, now, there's no dancing if you got to pay the tax, I mean, Kenny Clark told me this. He was there at the time, you know, mm-hmm. so he said, basically, you know, he's growing up, you know, learning to play and all that and they're playing around that when the club owners saw out they had to pay a tax if they was dancing, they said, no dancing. Then they didn't need a big band and they had a small band and Kluk said that what that meant for them is that they did not have to really stick to certain tempos and things like that, they could play what they want to, which helped to give birth to the freedom of experimenting for bebop. You
0: see, that's right. That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. You know, um, uh, you know, part the, part of the theme of my show uh, and, and what will become what is currently uh, becoming a book as we speak um, is this idea of uh, regional. Uh, regionalism and and you talked about it very eloquently. I've talked to uh, uh, quite a few guys. you know Donald I, I spoke to and now you I spoke to Michael Howell the guitar player he's also from Kansas City and yeah and, uh, I want you to talk to my audience about you know the kinds of thi- you growing up as a a young young man um, and 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 uh, and and going down the street and the amount of, of uh, music that was just coming out of storefronts. Uh, the kind of accessibility uh, on the radio dial, uh, were you able to pick up bleed-through channels? Because you, of all people, have, uh, it's not just me saying this, I mean, a lot of people consider you to have one of the most distinct and individualistic sounds uh, in your playing. And, and I, I, I tend to think your generation, really, so many individuals, because of this flexibility amongst the radio dial and, and, and the, the lack of barriers, talk about that.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, um, let's put it this way. One of the things that happened, and I've mentioned this a little bit, when I was growing up, my first introduction to being kind of a professional was when I was, you know, I started right away in 17. My mother called Arville Piggy Minor, who was a trumpet player with Jay McShann, went... Charlie Parker was in the band. And so she asked me, I mean, I said, Mom, I want to play. You know, she said, okay. She called Arvo, said he wants to play. Can you help him? So he picked me up, took me over to uh, set in at that time with Jay McShann's band. That's how I kind of got going. And as you know, all of those bands basically played for dancing. And so there was a... Uh, um, a particular sound associated with bands from different areas because of the geographical location. Again, as I've mentioned before, it was associated with the dance. Right. In different areas, they dance different ways. Uh, and so I re- most of McShann's playing, when I was playing with them growing up in Kansas City, and also when Charlie Parker was there, was geared toward the shuffle, which was the Midwestern shuffle kind So, you know, Bird didn't just play bebop. He was playing blues and chicken shack blues, you know, <laughs> because that's what people dance. And then they would experiment at the jam sessions. Right. There's, there's a, a, probably the best way to answer that, that question you mentioned is that, for instance, let's take Count Basie's Big Band, which was... Located, associated, and town basically with Kansas City, and then there was Duke Ellington's band. There is an example in in the uh, in, uh, the story of jazz Marshall Strasbourg, where when the band Duke Ellington's band would come into the Midwest, into the Kansas City area, they weren't that well received in the beginning because they played different kinds of dance music, hmm. more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And later, I state in my book, Duke was able to bring sophistication and funk together. That's, you know, what he'd learned from moving around to the different territories. On the other hand, when Basie's band, and this is very well documented, when they went into New York, the same thing happened to them. The people felt they were crude, you know, they didn't dance that sophistication way that they would dance when Duke was playing. Plus, the critics, as you know, attacked them. The critics said, the Count, check this out, the Cal Basie band can't play a good rhythm because they was playing the shuffle, which they weren't used to in the, in the East. And they played out of tune, which meant they were bending the notes, playing blue notes. <laughs> so it was all territorial, you see, at that time. A later example that involves me is that when I went to Europe, basically I was ten years, and you you know eight years in Paris, etc. The deal was I was playing, you know, just with Kluke, you know. So we're playing, you know, Bebop, bop, you know, and Dexter and Johnny Griffin and all those guys. Right now, when I and, and Bud and, and, and Kenny Drew, and so when I came back to take this job at the University of Pittsburgh in 1969. During that time, my mother had moved from the Chicago area back to Kansas City. So I drove down from Pittsburgh, you know, the second week or something. And as I got closer to Kansas City, I noticed the change in the sound of the music still and that would have been 70, you know, Wow, wow. You can still, and, wow. and I, I have to say this too, but the last time I was there, uh, well, this might be, I played the Juneteenth Festival for Eddie Baker, mm-hmm. and he had his big band on there. And I had played with uh, uh, was it Billy Eckstein, and he was on the job too. But I remember hearing Eddie Baker and, and his big band there in Kansas City, because I had already played or something. I was sitting on the this. And I heard the big band play, and I said, now nah, that's the Kansas City sound, the feel it's, it's still a little different, really. And that's amazing, but I witnessed that.
0: Can you, you that was profound. Uh, meaning you, you, you took the professorship, and in the music that you were hearing in in uh, the, the greater Pittsburgh area or Pennsylvania was was different. was different. I mean, and that's you're just talking about live. Like you know, you could go once you hit Kansas City and you got in uh, to visit your mom, and you started to go to the clubs again. It was you could you could hear a different sound. No, I
1: heard it on the way in the car. I I remember saying, wow. you know, because wow. I'm cognizant of this now because wow. I am teaching and doing research. And and as we were getting closer to Kansas City, you know, the road, you know, going down the highway, I'm listening to the radio. I noticed it already. And I can tell you this, if you and I've played in New Orleans, I I played down there with Ellis Marcellus and and and, and all those different guys at the, uh, at uh, uh, different clubs and, and things like that, you know. And uh, the guy by the name of Charlie Baring used to bring me in, you know. And and so when I got to New Orleans, I noticed there's, a, there's still a different sound in New Orleans, even today. Now, but the last time I played there, that was about 10 years ago or something, or maybe 12 years ago. But you can still tell it then. They're, it's, it's more uniform. Now, let me tell you one of the reasons why a lot of that is changing, and that is because of the media, the radio. You know, the, the, as you know, all the record companies are consolidating. Yep. As soon as the record come out and now, you, you you get the same record, or you might get it quicker in London, or but you'll get it in all the capitals all over the world at the same time. It used to didn't be that way, and that's when the music was regionalized, basically, you see. But now with the, the modern technique and so forth, and producing and broadcasting the music and so forth, now you download it. In Japan, you could probably download it In South Africa at the same minute You know, so everybody's hearing Kind of more of the same thing But before that, it was still a little bit Of a regional identity To the the various areas Well, I mean, part
0: of it was like I I remember uh, interviewing uh, Michael Kuskuna And he he talked about The idea that, yeah Something that was bubbling out of Kansas City There were so many independent record labels Just using that as an example it would take right. it would take a few months for those vinyl records, which is by the way all I listen to. I don't. I mean, I don't really. Ta- I can't even listen to a CD or an MP3 because the music sounds. Uh, yeah. It's just it's just so compressed. But the point is that it would take some time to actually get to the East Coast, and then it would just. Right, order, Yeah. Yeah, and 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 I mean, I don't want to. This is not about preservation. This is about promotion of of values i mean this is because because i mean nathan is like i mean it's all well and good that somebody can download the same thing in in south africa but the problem is and i've seen this because my wife and is from taiwan so we go back there with our kids and 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 when i go i when i first started going there i would find some cds like uh uh, international CDs like well, printed in Germany, like Art Farmer with like you know Sabu Martinez, like stuff you would never find. And now,
1: yeah, but that's not, you know what? You know, I knew him,
0: Sabu. Well, we're gonna talk about Play Sabu. Boy, yeah, I mean, because that, that cat was an animal. But the thing is, that, yeah. that, that the the thing is that that now I go back and everything it's restricted only to stuff that will sell. And as far wow. as I know, Eric Dolphy never wrote a song or played a solo. Based, oh, no, no. based on trying to sell something and that to me is a values thing and if you're trying to do that with music you're not going to have yeah. much progressive music that to me is the biggest one of the biggest conundrums that my generation uh, right. you know faces because and, and and I think that I look to you guys as cognoscentes because you grew up in this time when there was just a, a, a looseness and so much leadership and the strength and security of those people. I just like you to talk about that sort of the the the. Well, le-
1: yeah, you know, a lot of lot of things. Uh, I mean, I've I, I considered it a blessing to have worked with Kenny Clark all those years, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he used to talk about that very thing. Uh, I remember when I made this recording of uh, peace treaty, and Kluk was on it, and. and uh, uh, who was a Renee Urchard the French piano player that was with Miles, and, and Woody Shaw was on it, you know, a bunch of guys. Sure.
0: And
1: he used to talk about, he, he agreed to be, this is amazing, I was working for him, but he agreed to be a side man on my record, because <laughs> of my record, date, and never insisted that he was the leader or anything. And he used to say to me, Nat, Matt, Matt, I'm going to be on this record because I want to help promote you He said, because there are too many records being made of people who just copy other people and copy other people (laughs) and no original music. And he thought that I was original, like what you said. And and I, I appreciate that. He said, basically, a band would go out on the road two or three years maybe before they made a record. And so when they went in the record store, it was tight as hell. Mm hmm I mean, in the studio,
0: I'm sorry. So they would go out, okay, this is interesting. Continue, yeah.
1: Yeah, and and so they had reworked it, played it, and and so now they really are in. Now they call in guys and they put you on a record date with this guy, with this guy, and it's all about the money. And sometimes they're not even there in the studio. They brought in later the overdub solos and stuff, you know. So, you're losing
0: a whole lot. You're right about that. No, it's, it's, it's depressing. depressing. authenticity yeah. there. It, 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 that's, that is, that's what it is. It, it, my book is A Journalist's Search uh, for Authenticity in the Digital age, age Through Interviews with Master Musicians, because you guys don't have a filter. You literally just... Right. You, it, it's just a blowing fest, and... and you know, I, 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 but I, I try not to be to play too much of a devil's advocate because I am just a young guy, and I, I, I'm afraid that if I was growing up in the '50s or early '60s and and Coltrane was playing the kind of music he was, and I just would hope that I wouldn't have been one of the writers calling it hate music. To me, yeah. it's like I, I mean, I look back at at the way the critics, um, and I forget who I was interviewing, but somebody talked about. Uh, you know i just think it was there was a there was a humanity level there was a sensitivity level and there was also the command of the instrument the apparatus and when you fuse when you fuse the intimacy and the love with the apparatus then you have melodic invention and that to me is the most beautiful thing and that's what comes through because my history comes from you guys and being a voracious record collector and so it's you know and and Records are not being collected anymore because everybody has their little iPods or their you know their MP3s and they don't need to listen. Right, right, right. But the history, the liner notes, the photos, most importantly, the music gives you guys identities, and that's and that to me is the most scintillating part: is to see um, right. where we were in society at a certain point and where we've gone and um, you know, I, I I can't believe that you were a professor at University of Pittsburgh in 1970. That is phenomenal. That, I could not have thought. Of,
1: <laughs> that's unbelievable. Yeah, you know what? Uh, speaking about this this, this authentic, authenticity,
0: right?
1: I can give you a good story. I remember, you know, the first gig I had with Clu. Well. Second gig. The first gig was expatriate concert that was produced in Koblenz, Germany, by uh, Joachim Barrett. Then he invited me to open with him at the club Saint Germain de Pre in Paris. And I remember we were we were playing, and uh, this you know with playing with Kluke everybody wanted to play with Kenny Clark, so I played with everybody. You know, and uh, uh, I remember that. On this one particular occasion, Ben Riley was there.
0: Hmm.
1: He'd come through. I, I think he had come through with uh, uh, Dwight Mitchell, that uh, rough Mitchell duo, you know. And what had happened was he, he was talking, and they were talking, the train was just popping. This would be 62.
0: Right, right, right. right.
1: And so... He said, Man, I really love your player. I really love it. so, you know, I was happy because I wanted to keep that gig, you know, that, <laughs> that, that Cook was, you know, he was telling Cook. And he said, And Cook said, Yeah, I like that, man. I like that. And so, he, what he said, he said, You know, everybody around New York is sounding like train. And that don't, he said, Nathan don't sound like that because he ain't over there. Everybody's influenced. And I was. You know, maybe being influenced more by Dexter and and Johnny Griffin because I was around them. Right. So he was happy about that. So what I'm saying is that what happens. I always tried, even from in the the days that with uh, Carmel and, and Sumner High School. I always tried to be original. I, did, I you know I was influenced and maybe copied a couple of solos or something. Like that, but I always wanted to be original. I mean, that's what I always heard from Marvel Minor and from people like uh, J. McShane, you know, just be original. But if you go to the jam sessions, a lot of times, well, there's none really now, but if you play like a lick that somebody knows, they say, oh, that guy's great. He sounds like Train, or he sounds like, you know, like, uh, like Bird. But the thing is, if you sound original, then that guy's the guy that's listening the listener has to work hard to decide whether or not you're good so you stop trying to imitate who is popular and that I think is, does a great harm to, to upcoming musician and to music altogether. because original originality is what it's all about I agree
0: I, you know I mean this is and this is a conundrum with our education system in general across all lines I mean it's not it's music and it's art it's culture it's uh, invention. Right, right. It's. It, I mean, if you. I mean, that's the thing that's confounding to me. Whether it's you know you just. I mean, when I interviewed Bill Cosby, he talked about just the idea that he could go into a club and you could put a blindfold on him and he could tell you if it was Mickey Roker or if it was Tony right, 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 Tony right. Williams or if it, you know right. it, it, you know every drummer had their own had something to say and and oh, that yeah, yeah, yeah. but I think now. I, I feel because we live in a, in, a, in a in a less experiential based society, in a much more people are more in bubbles, students are more in bubbles, um, yeah. and, and because there's just not, I mean, with the exception of New York and you know maybe a handful of places in the states, there aren't really live jam sessions where you know all of a sudden you know you're you're playing at three in the morning, it's five degrees outside, and all of a sudden Miles Davis is coming into play. I mean, right. that, kind of experience, right. that kind of experiential learning is going to jazz, pardon the pun, it's going to get you fired up. And it's going to make you believe that you can do a lot of stuff, too. So I think that there was a security within your generation that is paramount, that is not existent today, because people, were, no, people are afraid to be individualistic, because if they do, they won't make any money. And that's what it's, what it's all oh, about. Yeah.
1: yeah, you know, uh, I remember uh, I was, uh, we were doing a little tour, uh, Pony Pondex oh, yeah if you know about him oh yeah There's myself and Pony Pondex oh yeah oh yeah and Montalillo the uh,
0: Spanish piano player sure
1: and, and uh, I remember uh, Charles Lloyd and them came over <laughs> and so we started talking about the conversation so, so Pony said to me he said uh, George Ivankian brought him over I remember and they was big Big mess all over Europe, you know. And Tony said, "You know what? He said if we want to get popular like those guys, he said all we got to do is play the same kind of things." About want to do that? (laughs) He said that's the style that everybody's trying to play like now. And he said we just keep on playing like we play, but we won't get picked up like that, you know. And so that's true, you know. The record. And I remember another conversation when Train was was really popping and he started to go out into the the uh, more avant-garde thing, you know, when he did the ascensions and all those things. And he started breaking loose. Then uh, Sonny Rollins was in the studio. I'm not going to call the name of the producer on that one. And Sonny was playing something and this was, I wasn't there, but I remember the conversation. And uh, the producer came in and said, well, why don't you play something more like what Train is doing? Yeah. You know, playing free. Yeah, and I and we all were like really pissed off about that because Sonny Rollins, are you
0: kidding? I mean, I the mean, guys the guys just, playing as free as you just can.
1: Just yeah. Innovation. You oh know?
0: My God, yeah. And so, but that was the thing. Everybody
1: was trying to be like what was popular at the time, you know. So, I guess the producer say, Well, this is what
0: you know. The avant-garde thing is hot now. Do that, you know. Yeah, I. But you know, I, I, you know, I still I look back. Joe Henderson and 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 uh, and, and Rollins, who's still with us, Gary Bartz, and you know, yeah, yeah. It, I, it, so there was a nonconformist, conformist I mean, I I know you're right. I, to me, it's it, it, it's just there was an authenticity level within you guys, uh, and there was a brotherhood. I think that's the point. I mean, it's like, uh, oh, yeah. you know, just the idea that Cal Jader would come uh, to, I don't know, to play in New York, and then uh, his bass player at the time, Al McKibben, would take him to, to the Palladium to see Tito Puente's uh-huh. band, and that's where he found Willie Bobo and, and Mongol. And then eventually he, he asked them to come with him to go. I mean, it just it was just this over this wonderful cross pollination of music. People were happening, and what was more paramount was that you thought for yourself and you played for yourself, and not. I, that's the other part of it. Is I wanted you to talk about it. There was a period of time in your career as a player when you started to play for yourself, more so than anybody else. I mean, obviously the audience, you always want the audience to be engaged, whether they're dancing or just listening. But
1: Yeah, well, I can tell you this. Mm-hmm. I always play for myself. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, I would play, yeah, like, right if I would, like, well, well if, I, if I was playing a dance or something, and I'm playing with Jay McShann, say, in the beginning, I would play what he told me to play melodies and things but when I soloed I did what I want to always and the same thing with Kenny Clark You know, I mean that's why Kenny liked me that I was different I wasn't trying to sound like somebody else you know and and so I always I can't remember a time when I didn't play for myself I mean I used to resist uh like uh copy and solos. I, let me give you a good example. You mentioned Joe Henderson. You mm. know, I was the one that brought him into the second tier of the of the Paris Reunion Band.
0: Yeah, so I saw I saw that. Left. Yeah, I, I said, I got the
1: guy because <laughs> Joe and I were very good friends. Oh, that's great. And so, one day, we were touring with the Paris Reunion Band and I, in Germany somewhere and uh, some guy, American guy, came up and asked Joe some questions and so forth and, Joe spent a little time with him, and then he left, you know, just after the gig. And so I kind of waited around for him. So when he came out, he was pretty agitated. I said, what's the matter, Joe? He said, man, I don't know about you, Nathan. At that time, he was teaching at some school there in L.A. I mean, in California, right outside of L.A. Mm-hmm. I forgot which one it was. And uh, I guess kind of, you know, when he was in town, he would teach here or something like that. And, um, he said, that's one of my former students. And He said that, "He said he's asked me some questions about some Coltrane licks and things, and, and Charlie Parker licks, and he said, I don't know about you, but I get so tired of that, man. We play through that all the time. And, and I said, Joe, that's the same thing with me. I mean, I do it because it's the literature and it's the background, but that's exactly what it is. <laughs> and you use that as a historical basis and a platform to build your own thing, you see. But when you start going out there soloing and using those licks and doing that, you're not soloing, <laughs> you know what I mean? And Joe, I remember he was really upset about that. He was he was a very
0: original guy. For um, me. I, I mean, that's, I mean, in, in full disclosure, it's, it's one of the major reasons I started my program was guys like Joe Henderson, who were like innovators. They could, I mean, he spoke, uh, but from what I know, he spoke seven or eight different languages, um, the guy was a, a, a super genius, but it's amazing to me, it, it, and it's so good to hear this, Nathan, because it's so important. I, I it's so um, to hear the exasperation of people saying, "Can they just get off the cold?" I mean, I'm doing my own thing. Why don't they re- understand that? I don't want to be. I'm not trying to do anything that Coltrane's trying to do or that right, bird right. is trying... You know, and, and and to me, that's the funny part, is that, in full disclosure, I don't own any John Coltrane records. I don't own any of these... Any, I, I only... My collection is about the unsung hero. So the only original... When I hear... What I, when I think of original sounds, when I think of individuality, I think of Woody Shaw, I think of Nathan right. Davis, I think of Joe Henderson, right. a, a number of people... Um, but you're really the first one to come at me with this this notion of that people were flummoxed because why don't you like Sonny Rollins why don't you do something like Coltrane I mean that's Yeah
1: yeah yeah that's yeah, amazing that kind of stuff yeah, wow. Yeah. wow but but you know even the jazz uh, when you played in jazz clubs and so forth the audience you know like most of the time you know they'd say oh that guy he sounds like Charlie Parker etc cetera, etc cetera, you know and if you didn't sound like Charlie Parker, then they say, yeah, I can. He's okay. yeah, he's okay. <laughs> he, you know, he had his like, own, yeah, right. One of the <laughs> most admitted cats out
0: there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, let me tell you a funny thing about, sure. uh, uh told me something about Charlie Parker and the exact
1: same thing happened to Eric Dolphy. Just about. Kluke said that, you know, um, uh, on Saturdays, Marcel Mew, the great classical saxophonists used to have master classes, I mean, I don't know if they were every Saturday, but once a month or something like that, in Paris. And so Charlie Parker, Kluke went out there with Charlie Parker, and Marcel Mule said, Well you do something like this and but you can't do it this way. And I said Bird said, "Can I see your horn a minute?" <laughs> <laughs> and Bird took it and did it the way he said. Marcel, said, the greatest classical saxophone player, said, "You couldn't do it." Mm. And, and Marcel looked at him and he said, "Well, that's impossible. You can't do it." And Bird said, "I just did it." <laughs> so, so that goes to show you how great Bird was on Eric Dolphy. Mm. I, now you know that I was the last group. Donald Byrd and Eric Dolphy that played together right before he died. It's very. This is very
0: important. I know. I know this.
1: Yeah. Okay. And what happened? Eric Dolphy went up to play with the uh, the, the ballet, classical ballet orchestra up in uh, Copenhagen during that the time when he was there, and the, he did something on the bass clarinet. And everybody said, well, that's impossible, you can't do that. And the bass clarinetist with the, I think it was the ballet, the radio ballet orchestra, it might have been the regular ballet orchestra. He said, this man is a genius on these instruments. And the reason why I wanted to bring that out, because (laughs) when, and God bless him, Donald Byrd and I used to, and a few other people, we used to have a little heated conversations because I was playing there, I was the third man, and Eric would do some stuff on the bass clarinet, the alto, and the flute, but especially the alto and the bass clarinet, that I used to tell Donald, I said, man, this cat is a genius. And Donald, of course, you know, he wanted to be the number one guy. He ain't <laughs> not about genius, he's doing it by accident, you know. And it wasn't true, you know. So a lot of, the established musicians during the time when I was working with Gary Dolphy, they questioned his ability or whether it was natural whether he was a naturally gifted and great artist, a genius. And I say yes. Another one was Sonny Stitt, who I worked with and recorded with in Paris. And but Sonny, he didn't doubt it. He, I remember, um, I was playing with. Uh, Gary off every night and then we went over to the Blue Note where Harry where, uh, got up and sat in. I think it was, I forgot who maybe Kluge was up there at the time, but Sonny Stitt looked over at me and he said to me, he said Nathan, what is he doing? Does he know what he's doing? I said yes. You know, because he did. Right. I mean, but there was that kind of hesitancy because they I guess guys were just not familiar with the way he was doing things, but I can tell you he never missed anything in the court. If for instance, if it's a raised eleventh or something, <laughs> I remember we played Jedi Bob Bug Walls. Continue. And, yeah. and, and and I was having a hard time playing it, so afterwards, you know, we played but did a little 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 da 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 you know, the thing about Fresh Walls. So so I would say, Eric, am I doing better? And he looked at me and said, Yeah, Nat, you're doing, but you keep missing that range eleven because he would change the chords around. Wow! And I would say he's bullshitting, <laughs> and then I would listen to the tape, and sure enough, he'd be right on it. I never
0: saw him miss. This is the this is the you're what you're talking about. Is he was he he just had natural get he was gifted with it, you know, and and
1: yeah, he was yeah, but not only that, he was very thorough and he. He, um, he had an inside knowledge of theory. I mean, uh, I actually, I'm glad to tell you this because I was there, and all those musicians that doubted him, then you got to doubt me too. Because, mm-hmm. But he knew exactly what he was doing. We, that, that group, it was Dahlberg, Eric Dolphy, myself, Luigi Cestardo. Tristardi, who was a French bass player with an Italian name, and Jacques Toulot, who was a French drummer. That was the band. And basically, we practiced more with that band than I have with any other band that I played with. We practiced four or five hours a day. And then, go and start at 10 o'clock and play the four in the morning. Every night.
0: And... So he knew what he was doing. Well, you know, it's just, it's, what I'm saying is, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back to, like, put Sonny Stitt whispered to you in the club. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, it's like, you, you can't, words don't, dis, you can't put it into words what Dolphy was doing. It was natural. It was a natural, gifted
1: thing. Yeah, and, he, he was, uh, well, you know, basically, now you talk about the connection. That's how, you know, Woody Show came to Paris. I sent for him to, uh, Eric's last wish you know Joyce Mordecai and I and Madame Ricard the lady who owned the Chucky Pesh approached me if I would help bring Woody Shaw to Paris because that was Eric's last wish right Mm. and Eric like we had played Saturday night Sunday night I stayed in the club to keep the gig open, and Eric flew to Germany because I had recommended to Berger that he would hire him, you know. And so the, the bottom line was that Eric said, I want to bring, you know, Billy Higgins, Bobby Hutchison, Richard Davis, and Woody Shaw. And so in order to do that, I kept the gig open, you know, and so at that particular time, I said, okay, I know who those guys are, but I don't know what he showing. He said, I know you don't. But that when you hear him, you'll be surprised. He said, he came up to me in New Jersey and said, Mr. Dolphin, can I sit in? And Eric said, you want to sit in with me? You, you know how funny my music is? And he said, he said, Yes, sir. I know all your music by heart. <laughs> <laughs> and then, he and then uh, Eric said, I-, I couldn't believe it. He said, He's the only guy I knew that knew how- all the funny stuff I do, that he had it down. And so he said, So that's who he is. And that's how I knew about Woody and Central Woody, you know, it was to fulfill I, his last wish.
0: It's just, it's, it's, it, it it doesn't matter if it's the skipper Henry Franklin or Donald Dean or or Frank Strazzeri or Nathan Davis. I, I mean, I'm not a musician, okay? I I can't I I, can't, I you know minor sevenths and you know my right. tunas and you know this stuff is. It, it, but what what is just so visceral and what just stands out is the it's just you guys as people. And the reason that you have identities for me at 35 years old is because. Uh, You know, I mean, there was really a commerce based industry built around the records and and you had right. you, you, it's it's so the music is part of it. But I get right. off more on the idea of, you know, somebody walking up and I've heard it so many times, you know, hey, Mr. Dolphy, can I can I sit in with you? And then after a little bit of questioning, it's like, yeah, come on up, let's see it. And either they're walking off the stage or they're so damn good, they're staying up with them. But the point is that you guys did not, you always knew the music was above, the music was bigger than any one of you individually, no matter how brilliant you guys were. Oh yeah, no, that's, that's true, you know. One of the things I always point to, and, and this is true, I mean, I don't care what anybody say, you know, when you start talking
1: about race and stuff like that, mm-hmm. I have never seen a white guy come in to all black situation in a black neighborhood. And I've never seen, if he's a bad ass, he's a badass <laughs> and he stays you know what I mean there's, <laughs> he's, there's no segregation there. and vice versa I never seen that either you're right the music stays where it is it's king you know so you know if I got a, a choice between you know like I don't look at it like that. The white piano player, or black piano player, or Japanese—I just get the baddest cat. Yeah, know?
0: that's that's <laughs> right. That's right, baby. I mean, you get the baddest yeah, cat who can just—that's just... that's what that's about. Yeah, because you're you, because because that the, that badness is never leaving that cat. But the thing is, yeah,
1: that... no, it, it ain't about <laughs> what color or what nationality. It's just. Can he do his shit? You know, that's it. Well, and, and that has always been the case. Really.
0: But but that leads into... I mean, I look at... Uh, you know, listen. I look at uh, white establishment, business, uh, business leaders uh, in the United States, and you've already referenced Europe a half a dozen to eight times. A lot of magic huh. went down there for you, musically, right. for, and for a lot of great improvisers and melodic inventors. And I just huh. say to myself... Boy, I really want to ask Nathan: Is that is there resentment and a backlash to the music of your people, of, of right. just just in general because of the fact that it's not understood, not accepted in the states where it was always accepted and loved so much and appreciated in Europe and in these days Japan right. as well? I'm curious about that. I mean, it, I feel like it's 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 America's only true art form. Yet it's it's by and large been through mass media and mass marketing it's it, it's it been totally perverted and it's kind of a is it was that because well, you know yeah.
1: the, the, uh, by the way uh, uh, really I mean I'm not just pushing but my wife wrote a book yeah Paris Without Regrets you know where she talks about Donald Byrd and and, and Kenny Clark and what's and, the name of the book? Mr. Himes what's or, the name of the book? you know I'm sorry
0: what's the name of the book?
1: uh it's called Paris Without
0: Regret. Paris Without Regret, okay.
1: And it's Ursula Davis. I know. got it, all right. Yeah, and so, you know, we knew all these writers, James Baldwin, you know, when I wrote my letter, my, I mean, wrote my opera, I had already met James Baldwin, and he used to come to the club every night, Chester Himes, you know, so we, Donald Bird and all of that. And in that, in that, um, in that book, you know, it's a good thing where cloak them you know, talk about just what you're talking about how the music has been commercialized the uh, the monetary and economic commercialization of it based on race you know he talks about all this stuff in there but I remember basically you know the, the one thing uh, there was there was a thing that happened in the Buddha and, and and this is something I, I didn't, I've done a bunch of interviews in that period because recently, you know, of course, I'm, yeah, of I'm retired and all that shit, you know. And, but I didn't tell anybody this. And this is I remember Google Key was Kenny Clark was like my, you know, musical father so I always refer to him. And in the blue note, you know, they brought everybody in there. So they brought Sonny Stitt in and then they brought in uh before him, Stan Getz had been and so then Benjamin, who was American Jewish guy from New York, mm. who owned the Blue Note, mm. who was married to a French lady, and they owned the Blue Note together. They paid Stan Getz more money mm-hmm. than Sonny did, and Sonny was pissed. And so now, this is something I know I was there. I <laughs> heard the discussion. And Ben explained it, and, it and, and you have to look at it for what it is. I don't care whether you're pro-black or pro-white. Ben Benjamin said, look, you know I'm cool. He said, but when Stan comes in, there's all these rich, white, French businessmen and doctors and people like that that come. Tons of them. And when Sunny comes, not so many of those come. Yeah, but it's all, you know, all of him was France, of course, so so it's not a segregated thing. He said, so I make more money with Stan, and I can pay him a little more. That's the only reason why I did it. That's what he said. And I thought about that. You know, because the first thing you say, oh, the guy, he's paying the white guy more money, you yeah. know. But it's, it's,
0: there's a little... Hello? Yeah, no, keep going. I'm, I'm with you. You know what, let me, yeah. Let me go get this other phone because this phone is going to go out. <laughs> Nathan. Yeah. Okay, you nah. No, listen, man. I just want to tell you, we're definitely doing a part two on top of this. This is the one of the greatest interviews I've ever done in my life. Oh, okay. And I've done over 300. But no, no, but, but what was your. So you thought about it and you did see some validity in what he was saying? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Did you? Did you? After after you thought on it on that for a while, the club owner. Yeah. Did you see? Did you see his point of view a little bit, or how did how did Yo, you? of
1: course, I saw his yeah. point of view because if he's bringing in, you know, look, the whole thing has to do with
0: money.
1: Hmm. I mean, you you can't operate the club. I mean, you know, for instance, at that, I'm not sure about the money. I'm thinking now, this is in this mid 60s. It's probably like Stan was getting five or eight thousand a week, you know, for playing in the club, you know. Right. And probably Sonny was getting five.
0: Right, right, right. So
1: $3,000, different thing. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying I saw the dollar reality of it.
0: Mm, right.
1: And so the thing is. It, it it still goes back to the record companies because they're promoting, you know, the the artist, and the artist with the biggest name is going to draw the most people. You see, and so you still got to make that money come in. But in in Ben's defense, he was bringing in more black musicians than he brought in. White musician, you can't say he's prejudiced. No, uh, but you he know, had to defend him, you know, because people were talking to him about it. Now, I, you know, you got to remember, I was like what 22 23 and happy to be there. I was in bebop Heaven, shit. You know? Well, I know. I mean, so I not saying anything,
0: you know. No, but but I think it's 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 funny. I'll bring up uh, Big Black again because yeah, you
1: know I can't hardly hear you. I picked up this other phone.
0: Can't talk a lot. Uh, I'll try. Can you hear me now?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh maybe I get this other. Go
0: ahead. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I'll I'll bring up Big Black again because he yeah. he talked about uh on the same bill okay, so a record company is gonna promote a concert, right? And on the right. same on the same bill you had Duke Ellington and the average white band. Okay. Oh wow, that's a hell of a bill. <laughs> <laughs> well that's what I'm saying. And and to me, but yet he says, at the end of the day, they're paying the average white band seventy grand a night, and, yeah, du- yeah. and Duke Ellington's band's getting twenty grand a night.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, no, 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 that, that's right. Because probably, you know, I, I don't know the venue, right? But probably in terms of the average white band plus playing funk, right. they have a much bigger crowd. And will draw more people. Absolutely. It has nothing to do with the, who's, who, who's playing the most authentic or the most, you know, original music or anything
0: like that. I just feel like, in many ways, uh, because you, if it goes back to the record companies, so be it. There, the, there were white owners of record companies. I mean, Barry Gordy owned Motown. He was the last right. last one to really, you know, go go by the wayside. But you know, these people. Um, I wasn't around for it, I mean, I wasn't living for it, but it, it strikes me as just this individualistic sound being produced by African-American people, the individuality, uh, it's its, educa- it's a, the sophisticated African statement, and that is powerful, and that, the, and that can usurp any sound bites or any type of crap that we are going through. You see what we're going through now, we're in paralysis now. And, and I'm, I'm pretty certain it's, bec- I'm pretty certain a major factor has to do with the fact that these Titans, we've mentioned a lot of them, Kenny Clark, Sonny Stitt, uh, John Coltrane, Eric Dolphy, Donald Byrd, Nathan, D- I mean, th- you guys are, you guys are graybeards, no, you know, no, no, I mean, you, and there's no, there's no younger African generation of, of improvisational musicians, and it, quite frankly, I don't even know if it's important to be able to play an instrument anymore.
1: Yeah, well, that's the other part of it. I mean, you know, you got all the different kinds of jaunders going on. But I think, you know, a good example of what I think I mentioned to you before, Donald Byrd, uh, or maybe I mentioned one of the guys, but Donald Byrd and I were very tight because we played every night and made records and stuff. And the thing was, he did some clicks. And I remember he was, talking about doing
0: one down in North Texas State, and the kid jumped up and said, Bob, You know, play the lick or something like that. And <laughs> you, yeah, said, yeah, 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 yeah. Did I tell you that? Yeah, but, but, but this is for the
1: radio, so go ahead. Okay, so so Donald said, so you think you're bad because you played that lick? And the kid said, well, I mean, you know, it's hip and all that. And he <laughs> said,
0: just like you played that lick, he said that thousands of young kids in thousands of schools around
1: the world Playing that same lick, and he says, "So why do you think you bad? Because you can play it." <laughs> and, and the kid shut up. So he knew what he meant. Like that, the thing is to, as you had mentioned earlier, try to be original and do something that you know. Even if you learn, let's say, a lick or something like that 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 uh, Miles played or that, uh, that Clifford Brown or somebody played, then you. You know what you try to do. You don't play that as part of what you're supposed when you're supposed to be solo. You just maybe use that and build original stuff on it. For instance, one of the things that I used to do, if you take a Charlie parker lick, do a lead-up, you know, I would say, "Okay, play this." If they would play that, and I said, "Now, under that, write me five different versions of that."
0: Exactly. That's, you know that, that, I mean? that, that is Nathan Davis Donald Byrd education right I see I there were a lot of cats Oscar Peterson had a school in Toronto the, the, yeah. Gil Evans I'm just saying that that that, that the 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 right writer, Rangers writers you guys it, that it's about saying okay so so do five different iterations of that that's right, right, right. you know like that stuff is that's where the creativity I you know I can't speak to it but it's also very you know I, I before before we wrap up Part one here with Nathan Davis. I mean, this is just because my my phone battery is going to die, and I, I want to make sure. That, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But it was not one of them. Died yeah, like I know, that. I know. Can you? Yeah, do, yeah, we can call. We can talk again. I'm I'm, I'm leaving town tomorrow, and I'll be back in a week.
0: Okay, yeah, we'll do. We'll pick it up when you get back. But yeah, yeah. but uh, but talk. A, can you talk a little bit about uh, Donald Dean and his um, and his? Yeah, his one, sig- one of the
1: things yeah. I know. By the way, Donald is a distant cousin
0: of mine. Oh, that's... <laughs> I, lo- I love it. I love it.
1: And uh, remind him Uncle Goldsmith. You <laughs> can't say it. Just say, Nathan, say Uncle
0: Goldsmith. I will. I will. I, okay, will. Okay, okay.
1: I will. Well, the first time... I think I told you first time that I heard Donald play... You know, Donald was like a child prodigy
0: mm.
1: on the drums. Right. And the first time I heard him play was with Eddie Baker's group. They, I mean, they had one hell of an original group, really, and with that Kansas City sound, And uh, everybody was talking, I mean, I don't care who was playing around here, everybody was talking about this young drummer, Donald Dean. I think Donald might have been 14 or something. I mean, he, was, he was young. He was you a know? kid,
0: yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, and
1: then later after that, I mean, they were play, and they were playing like almost every night, and then, I think he went with Ray Charles, if I'm not mistaken. But he left town going out on the road. But I mean, then the next thing I heard about him, he was with, uh, uh, I'm not sure if he was with, uh, with Les McCann then or not but anyway he'll tell you i recruited him and, and i said come on up to the university of kansas man I, I need the drummer so i got him and, and later after him i got marvin patillo who's another kansas City drummer, and then i got Carl Mel. i made them all enroll in college so i
0: could have a band <laughs> <of that. laughs> hey man that's that you just were using the resources around you i mean what i i yeah, said
1: well i wanted to
0: have a hip band no oh drummer, come right. on absolutely <laughs> yeah. man yeah, and Donald had just gotten out of the Navy. That's what he, I remember. And, uh, and he was—he came up, and he—I forgot a couple of years, or something like that. You know? Yeah, no, I
1: just—but anyway, he—he he, was—he was a natural. He—he was—he was truly like a child prodigy. That's—that's that's the best
0: thing I can say about him. Well, Nathan, I—I just—I mean, I, you blew my mind a few times. Uh, I, I'm hoping the next time around, I'm going to be able to, uh, to. To we have a few more things that I wanted to discuss with you, but. Uh, I'll call Okay, you.
1: well, ju- yeah, just, uh, now, we're leaving tomorrow, I think, uh, wait a minute, just a minute. Hey, Ben, when are we back? Are we back next, uh, Saturday or something? Yeah, I'll be back here Saturday, she said, I have
0: to check with her. Hey, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll call you, uh, and, uh, and, and, and we'll, we'll set up a time to do it. Um, I just also, okay. before you go, um, uh, I don't know, have you ever been in touch with Woody Shaw's son?
1: Yeah, yeah, he's called me a few times. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, in fact, I recommended that he go to uh, to uh, Indiana up there with David Baker. You know, because David and I tell you, and he went to school up there for I think he went a year. I just so, and, he's, yeah. and he's calling me about different things. And yeah, I just know that he
0: uh, he's uh, the story you told about his father is just incredibly touching story.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, what well, well, we were like, we were like. I was feel like his big brother, you know, he just, whatever. I got some more stories about what he's,
0: I mean, you know. Oh, no, we're, we're, no, listen, so I'll call you, next. you'll be back Sunday, next Sunday? He
1: said, no, she said we would be back Saturday, so. Saturday I'll, I'll just call you next Sun.
0: I'll call you next Sunday, we'll set up a time to do part two. Yeah, and, and
1: uh, by the way, her book, the one where you can hear about Klook and yeah. the, talk about that scene there, about the commercialization and all that. It is like I said, with Paris without regret, Ursula Davis, and it's
0: University of Iowa Press. I'm gonna. I gotta look for this Marshall Stearns book. You know, but I'll tell you something. With Jay uh, Feinberg, this is a primary source work with you guys. I do a lot yeah. less. I do a lot less reading and a lot more listening to you. You guys are on the ground, so the the, the book, yeah. my book, in the land, um, of, yeah.
1: You'll like her book too because it's all personal interviews with cats we know, you know. Oh, that's great. I, no, I'll go
0: get I'll go I'll go dig it up and uh Yeah. Have, okay. a, good, have a good trip, man.
1: Okay, thanks a lot.
0: Talk well, to you soon. Bye.